0: Well, good morning, church, and happy New Year's Eve day. All right. I got that down. All right. Well, I hope you had a great Christmas, as Pastor Chuck alluded to, and um, that this past week, it's a week full of rest for a lot of us. Maybe we had the week off and that you were able to just enjoy some downtime after the holiday season. But all of a sudden, the week passes, and, all of us, and we are here at a new year on the cusp of 2024. So for all the good that we've celebrated at the end of December, it can be a little overwhelming. Nevertheless, I hope during much of the busyness that you had a wonderful Christmas. You enjoyed uh, time with friends and family. Maybe you got some cool gifts or you gave some cool gifts. You watched some good Christmas classics. Even the Hallmark ones. (laughs) Even the Hallmark ones. And that you especially enjoyed devouring some of those Christmas cookies Pastor Chuck talked about a few weeks ago. You got some. There you go. But above all, I hope over the last week you were able to reflect and just rejoice in the fact that we have this hope that Josh talked about, the scope of the hope that arrived when that most unprecedented gift came to dwell on earth, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh. So with the Christmas festivities officially behind us, let's move forward into 2024 Now, with a church our size, there surely must be a variety of opinions when we think about the new year. Some might come to the new year with a sense of hope, prayerful that this one would be better than the last. Others might approach the new year with some type of apprehension or angst over the prospects of change that inevitably always comes with a new year. Rather, on the flip side, there might be some of us this morning that are excited about this very thing, change. We want change. And surely... There are some in our midst who are grieving after the loss of a loved one or just a hard experience from 2023. Regardless of how you feel, though, the fact remains that in our culture, millions of people will place a considerable amount of weight on the decisions they make today for how they will choose to live their life over the next 12 months. I'm talking, of course, about New Year's resolutions. I found a survey this week that would help us grasp the impact and the importance that New Year's resolutions has on our country, in particular, our country. So according to a survey, one in three Americans began 2023 by setting resolutions. That's quite a bit. And of that third, the amount of resolutions that were made were about three resolutions. And most of these resolutions had something to do with health or finances, um, pretty typical things. But the demographic most likely to have set a a resolution were those ranges from the ages of 18 to 34. About 59% of people that age had a resolution. And perhaps the most surprising stat of them all is that the average reported reported time that people maintained their resolution was two to three months. Sounds a little suspect to me. Now, we know resolutions notoriously come and go like a flash in the pan, so much so that it's unofficially uh, announced the the second Friday of January as Quitter's Day. Quitter's Day. (laughs) So admittedly, resolutions vary from person to person, yet I think at the core of all resolutions is this desire to find fulfillment in life in some measure. I think this accounts why so many young people, in particular, are enamored with setting resolutions we can easily find, within a new year, a built-in opportunity to find redemption from previous years' failures and disappointments. And in our age, social media picks up on this angst as one influencer from the next emerges from the woodworks one by one, each one more confident that their plan, that their advice, would help you to resolve to to keep your resolution. So, I'm not going to be talking about resolutions the whole morning, And my intention is not to discourage anybody from using this new year as an opportunity to start a new habit or to set goals. I think it would actually be a wise and godly thing to use these next few days to think about how can I improve, what areas can I improve upon, whether it's a spiritual discipline, corporate discipline in our church. But rather, I want to contrast that, as opposed to finding redemption in a resolution, that we remember we'd already have a redeemer in Christ today. Resolutions, like lots of things, are simply neutral, neither good or bad, and Christians have the freedom to start a diet or to go to the gym more often. However, if we start to place more confidence in that redemption of resolution, we, become, we begin to become misguided. For church, there is no other redeemer from our sins and our shortcomings from 2023 than in Christ. And there is nothing more that we need in 2024 than Christ, than to abide in him. Maybe you were here with us this Christmas Eve. Um, Pastor Chuck, he encouraged us to consider what our church might look like in the new year if we adopt the mind of Christ, the humility of Christ into the upcoming year. He said for having the mind of Christ, we would begin to inevitably act like Christ And then a few verses later in Philippians, we can see that Paul encourages the church by saying that the fruit of acting like Christ would cause this church to shine like lights in the midst of a wicked and crooked generation. In today's text, John 15, we'll see that Jesus gave crucial instructions for his disciples prior to his crucifixion to do just that, to shine in the midst of a twisted and crooked generation. And today, church, these are just as relevant for us as we enter a new year. In them, I hope we would find a resolution that actually brings life. So with that being said, let's please turn to John 15. If you have the blue Bible in, front of you, in the seat back in front of you um, or under the chair in front of you, it's on page 526. I'm going to take a swig of water before reading this. All right. John 15, verses 1 through 17. These are the words of the Lord I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So church, what we find in the context of John 15 is a situation comparable to ours as we venture into 2024. Back in chapter 12, Jesus can be seen triumphantly entering into Jerusalem with his disciples ahead of the Passover festivals. These disciples, having witnessed his miracles and sat under his teaching for the past three years, must have, have high hopes entering into Jerusalem on this trip. And surely, this was the moment that Jesus would assume his throne and officially lead Israel to peace through a political upheaval. Unbeknownst to them, however, these crowds that cried Hosanna and welcomed their Lord into the city would in a mere week's time be calling for shouts of accusation calling for a criminal's crucifixion outside these walls of Jerusalem. Jesus, however, knew that his hour had come to depart from the world and return to his Father in heaven. So with his impending departure in mind, Jesus spends the next four chapters of John, from chapters 13 to 17, preparing his disciples for life in the world absent of his physical presence. And Jesus chose these words, these words in John 15, for the purpose of implanting within his, in the, in these simple men a devout resolve to boldly and compassionately be his witnesses in a world full of suffering and sin. In church, they have been recorded for us as well in John so that we too might be encouraged toward the same end to have boldness and compassion as, as we're Christ's witnesses in a world still suffering from sin. So upon completion of his final supper, Jesus leads the group out of, out of the upper room and towards the garden of Gethsemane, where he'd end up giving himself over to his conspirators. But the master teacher that Jesus is, on the way he sees a vineyard, and, he catches his eye, and it catches his eye, and it prompts him to teach his disciples a lesson about their dependency they'll have to have on him even when he's gone. And his point in John 15 is not hard to discern. It's pretty simple. As the branches must remain attached to the life source of the vine for them to have any life or to bear fruit, so too must his disciples remain attached to the vine if they want to be fruitful and they want to have life. Church, Jesus is clear here. The life of our discipleship to Christ is nourished by abiding in his love. So as I said, this passage, it doesn't appear all that complicated on on the surface. And a quick reading could cause us to conclude that this teaching was on maybe the easier end of Jesus' teaching spectrum. There's a lot of things Jesus taught and some of them are harder to understand than than others. This one, in my mind, it seems like it's on the easier end, right? Wrong. Um, As I read and reread the passage, in preparation for this morning, my tunes slowly begin to change. There is much here for us to meditate on, actually a full year's worth that we really could give to meditating about what it means to abide in Christ. And as Maddie mentioned, we're having a church history connection class coming up. One of the people I'm sure we'll talk about is this man named Augustine, or Augustine, however the correct way to pronounce it is. So famously, Augustine said that the scriptures are shallow enough for a child to swim in without having to worry about drowning, yet also deep enough for an elephant to swim in. That's kind of an interesting comparison, child and elephant, but I think it gets the point clear that the scriptures are, are wide and deep. And all of us this morning are at different points in our journey with Christ and his scriptures, Some of us can swim a little bit farther away from the edge. We can swim a little deeper. And others are just blowing up the floaties, learning how to swim. And that's okay. Wherever we're at today, my hope and my prayer is that through understanding this passage, we'd all just grow a desire to want to abide with Christ. We'd want to know him, we want to spend time with him next year. So, in the text, we find Jesus reading or teaching through a metaphor of a commonly known object at the time, it was a vineyard. It might be something like, you're walking down the street and you see a football game, you would compare something uh, to a football game. At least that's what I would do. Um. But his intention through this metaphor was to vividly demonstrate to his disciples their dependency on him and how fruitless they would be if they didn't abide in him. And then after teaching, uh, the metaphor, he went on to explain and give commentary about what these things meant and how to abide in him, how to actually fulfill the thing that the metaphor was pointing to namely, abiding in his love. So, in these two, past, two portions, we'll see two move, movements, and that'll kind of guide our thinking this morning. And the priority in all of them is that abiding in Christ ought to have something as we consider goals or resolutions for this next year. As we, as we head into the next year, a lot of things on our plates. This, this needs to be a priority for us, according to Christ. For, the, for our life as disciples to Jesus is nourished by abiding in his love. So I'm going to go ahead and read John 1, 1 through 8 again, not the chapters, but the verses, um, just to kind of get us fresh in our mind. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. So in Jesus' metaphor, we see two main actors, two main actors in the metaphor. They're both found in verse one. It's Jesus as the true vine. And his father as the vine dresser. So Jesus is the true vine, and his father is the vine dresser who prunes and removes. That's what, the, that's what the father does. He prunes and removes. So let's briefly discuss both, and we'll see that they tell us a little bit about who God is and our relationship to him. We'll start with Jesus, the true vine. So if you were to sit down this later this afternoon or sometime this week and just read through John... You would often see Jesus using this word true, this adjective true, in relation to him in many of his conversations. And like most words that we have, true can be used in, in a variety of ways. And one of the ways the Bible frequently uses true is in the sense to distinguish something as eternal, divine, and heavenly, rather than just human and earthly. So distinguish between the two. True would be human, divine, and eternal, and not, to not be true would be just to be human and earthly. And so the Bible uses true often in the New Testament to pull on a thread of an Old Testament image or theme to show how Jesus is the fulfillment of that theme. An example we see in John is in uh, John, John chapter 6, verse 32, where Jesus calls himself the true bread from heaven. So in this portion of John, Jesus referred to himself as the true bread in response to a demand for a sign to be performed, like the one that Moses and the Israelites received when the when the bread from heaven fell down. And as the true bread from heaven, Jesus responded that he was sent down to provide eternal, lasting sustenance in offering himself. So what these complainers received was actually far better than what Moses and the Israelites received in the wilderness. So Jesus is doing the exact same thing when he says he is the true vine. He's pulling on a thread and showing that he is the completion, fulfillment of that theme. So in, throughout the Old Testament, we see that the vine is a common symbol for the nation of Israel. Now, it's not going to be on the screen, but just listen to this. This is from Psalm eighty verses 8 through 11, and try to see who you can identify the vine being. It says, You brought a vine out of Egypt, and you drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade, the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, and its shoots to the rivers. Who do you think this vine that is brought out of Egypt is referring to? Well, clearly, it's a reference to God's, God's deliverance of Israel from the people of, in Egypt and his establishment of them as a nation in Canaan. So, Israel is the vine that Jesus is talking about. However, elsewhere in the Old Testament, in particular the prophets, whenever we see the people of Israel referred to as a vine, it's always in reference to the judgment Israel faced. And due to this judgment, or this judgment was due, namely, into a lack of good fruit that they produced as God's covenant people. And as his choice vineyard planted among the nations, Israel was supposed to be a blessing to others. They were supposed to bear witness to the bountiful life that comes from God's cultivation. So that others may turn and join in them in worshiping Yahweh as well. Rather, we see uh, the Isaiah the prophet remark that when the Lord came to the vineyard looking for it to yield grapes in the time of harvest, he found instead wild, nasty grapes, gross grapes, yuck. <laughs> so Jesus is the true vine. He was the true vine that everything Israel was supposed to be, because he perfectly obeyed his Father and he perfectly represented his father's character to the nations. He never fell subject to God's judgment except when in love, he willingly received the judgment for our sin. All those who trusted in him, he took that judgment on himself. So today, the church comprises the true vineyard because all those who are intimately connected to the true vine, are those who have placed their faith in Jesus. So brothers and sisters, do you you realize that if our lives are so vitally attached to Jesus as our true vine, then it is vital that we intentionally pursue connection to him because he is our source of life. It is important that the source of life is found only in Jesus. It's not ultimately found in our relationships within the church. It's not found in the value we provide as we serve one another. And finally, it's not found in the wisdom or the guidance from our elders or from those who disciple us. Life is found only in Jesus. He is the true vine. Apart from him, we really can't do anything. Now relationships, serving one another, wisdom from elders and those who disciple us, these are wonderful, wonderful gifts from God. And the local church is God's ordained arena where such avenues to spiritual nourishment is found. But we cannot confuse these good gifts as our source of life. They are only good to the extent that they point us to the source of life, Jesus Christ, as we draw near to his love. So brothers and sisters, resolve this morning to seek him alone for life in the new year. Whatever, whatever might distract you from seeking life in him, consider what, what place it should have in 2024. He calls us to abide in, in his love. So that's, that's Jesus, the true vine. The second character, the second actor in the metaphor is the father, the vine dresser. Now, I don't know if there's a lot of vines in Tempe, so I had to do some research on what a vine dresser was. And the vine dresser is a laborer responsible for pruning branches and clearing away dead branches at the end of the harvest season so that the vine could, so it has enough room for regrowth in the next season. So in the metaphor, Jesus says that the father, that his father, his job likewise is twofold, to, to remove branches and to prune branches. So let's take them in the reverse order and consider both jobs. His first job is to to prune branches that bear fruit in order that they may have room to bear even more fruit. Now, for our green thumbs in the room, I know there's quite a few, you'll know just how important the work of pruning is to a plant and the care, the meticulous care it requires. To go into any session of pruning without a purpose or a plan is a surefire way to destroy your garden. And to the untrained eye, vine dressing can look like someone stripping back a vine back to the bare stub, leaving it incapable of growing any fruit in the future. And this pruning, is what Jesus says, is given to those that bear fruit. Those who bear fruit are pruned. No fruit-bearing branch is exempt from the Father's shears. Each cut, however, is made precisely and done with the utmost care by our perfect vine dresser. Many in our church this morning can personally attest to the painful process that the Father's pruning can be. I know I can. But as I reflect on those times, I praise God that His shears were used in the form of trials to prune my remaining sin. I'm thankful that he did so. And how amazing would it be to share stories of the Father's vine dressing, his pruning, and the work, the good work that's come out of that. Church, we should praise God when he prunes us. Because as Chuck prayed, all those, he that he began a good work, he will complete. And part of that is pruning out our sin. But maybe you you find yourself today, in a season that you're presently in, that the, the pruning is pretty severe, and you're confused of why it needs to be so difficult, why it needs to be so hard. Well, I would encourage you this morning to take heart, knowing that the Father would never thoughtlessly hack you to pieces. He would never hack away at you. Rather, like a skilled surgeon, he makes those incisions, he makes those cuts, to root out your sin and to bring about your health, bring about your good. Hebrews 12.10 tells us that the father disciplines all his children as a good, perfect father ought to so that we may come to share in his holiness. To share in God's holiness is what we were made for. And as new creations in Christ, this is our inevitable end. This is what we're destined for, to be spotless and pure, without blemish, still he is not unaware to our frailty and he knows our frame and remembers that we are dust. You can entrust your whole life to him this year, church. He loves you and as seasons of pruning come, inevitably maybe tomorrow or at the end of the next year, as they come, remember Jesus' words, or James's words, Jesus' brother, James, His words. (laughs) He says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. His other task is more sobering, though. taking away all those branches and burning all those that fail to bear fruit. But it's helpful to remember the context here. Jesus was speaking to his own, and he was encouraging them to persevere prior to his departure. His intention was not to scare his disciples of threats that they may be removed if they, if they slipped up. Earlier in John, Jesus said that he would not lose a single one, not a a single one of his sheep, as he called himself the good shepherd. We are secure in Christ. But however, it does remain the case that the Father removes branches that fail to bear fruit. Even those who at one point gave indication to be attached to the vine. But had those branches truly been connected to the vine, they would not have been removed, they would have been pruned because that's what he does to all those who are attached to him who bear fruit, he prunes them. But being removed from the vine, they showed themselves to not truly be branches connected to him. And upon this thinking, one's mind might immediately turn to Judas who epitomizes the branch lacking true connection to Jesus even though he was as close as anyone. Thus failing to bear fruit in and then end up being removed. We read in John, 1, 1 John 2.19, and he, John clarifies for us this thinking. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would, not, they would have continued with us. But they went out, that it might become plain that they all are not of us. Jesus' words are clear. Fruitfulness is an infallible mark of true Christianity. The alternative is dead sticks that amount to ash. Now we're at verse 3. Jesus reassures his disciples by telling them that they are presently clean. Today they are clean. Why? Because of the words that he has spoken to them. As they heard his words expressing who he was as the Son of God, the Christ, the Messiah, and when they believed in him, they were placed in a purified relationship with the Father. No longer dirty, they were clean. And because of their cleanness from their sin, Jesus invited these disciples to abide in him, to draw near to him, to remain in him. Church on Mill, you too are as clean as these disciples because you have received Christ's words as well. And the death that Jesus was preparing his disciples for, that has secured your security and your ability to abide in him. And what was this cleansing for? What was the purpose? Why, why, why did he clean the disciples? Well, in verse 9, it says, Because he loves them verse 15 it's because he's made them his friend and verse 16 it's because he chose them he chose you all of this so that you would abide in him and that he would come to dwell within you by his holy spirit and so that he and his father could make their home with you it's pretty wonderful that the father and the son come to make their home with his people. But how exactly do we abide in Christ? All these things may sound right, orthodox, check the mark, nod the head, but how exactly do we put these things into practice? Is that up to our own prerogative? Do we get to choose whatever makes us feel good? I feel like I'm abiding in Jesus by doing this. Is that that okay? I feel like he's in me by when I do this. Is that okay? These These are the questions that Jesus answers in our next portion of scripture, verses 9 through 17. And Jesus moves from the divine metaphor, and he restates how we go about actually abiding in him. So I'll read from 9 to 17. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this: that someone laid down his life for his friends, and you are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you, and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. So after using the metaphor to reveal our dependence on him and the fruitfulness that comes By doing so, Jesus begins to rephrase his words, yet retains the same principle of abiding in him. Now, Jesus' primary interest in verses 1 through 8 was abiding to bear fruit, to prove legitimacy as disciples, and to bring glory to the Father. We see that in verse 8. And fruit was listed six times in these eight verses, and three times within the first two verses showing that he put a premium on fruitfulness through his metaphor now Jesus shifts from teaching his disciples about how to he shifts to teach his disciples about how to abide in him so that this fruit would come and verse 9 says that Jesus' disciples are the recipients of his love in the exact same way that he is a recipient of his father's love So we receive Jesus' love, the same love that Jesus receives from his Father. And if we are to abide in his love, we must know how Jesus abound in his father's love. I think that was a word. Okay. Abided, thank you. So if we want to abide in Jesus' love, we have to know how Jesus abided in his father's love. And he did this by keeping his commands. Now, verse 9 through 11 beckons us this morning, brothers and sisters, to draw near to the very center of God's heart, the very union between the Father and the Son. He calls us to abide in this love. I think that's why people have found John 15 to be such a beautiful text, because it calls us to dwell with God and shows us what that relationship looks like, the love that is given to us. And we know we are welcomed because of the cleansing offered in Christ's words and as we obey his commands. And the individual commands that must be obeyed if we are to remain in his love, we see in verse 12, they're now subsumed into one single command. He says, This is my commandment, singular, that you love one another as I have loved you. To love someone else, presupposes a present love for God. For Jesus in another gospel says that the entire law can be condensed into these two points, love for God and love for people. In church, Christ's perfect love for his father fueled his perfect love for his people. And that pure love, that pure perfect love was displayed as he wholeheartedly took this command upon himself to lay down his life, to make us rebels his friends. Now, following his perfect example of perfect love, fueled by knowing this love personally, we abide further in his love as we love one another with the same sacrificial love. I love that. For our love towards one another serves as the litmus test for whether we love God and whether his love abides in us. So we've we've covered much ground so far this morning. And I thank you for your patience and your encouragement um, and how you value the scriptures. Jesus is the true vine. And through union with him, through connection with him, through faith in him, we have received the perfect source of life, in his love. And we abide in him. As we abide in him, we'll bear fruit. And this brings glory to the Father. And his Father, we see, is he's now our Father. And as such, he promises to discipline us as love as his sons and daughters so that we may come to share in his holiness. So when when we abide in the very love of Christ, We're abiding in the love that the Father shows to the Son. This infinite and eternal, deep, endless love. And brothers and sisters, if you're in Christ this morning, he welcomes you to draw near and to abide in his love this morning. And every day as you seek to obey his commands, to love one another with the love that you've been shown, We're not earning his love. It's a love that we received that goes forth and loves others. For he has chosen you, chosen you to bear much fruit and that your fruit would abide again to the praise and glory of the Father. As you abide in him, your your prayers even will start to imitate the will of God, knowing his will and now becoming your own, transforming you into him. And if you don't know Christ, this is the love that you're invited into. Where other other place can you find this love? It's not going to be in a resolution. It's not going to be in a relationship or or in a job, a title. It's not going to be in wisdom from the world. It's only found in Christ. And he invites you today. What we find in verse 13 is he laid down his life. Greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. That is exactly what he's done for us. You were invited into that this morning as well. If you would turn from your sin and trust in him, you would become a friend of God. Now, church, it's been a wonderful year. God has done so much to build us, not only numerically, but in unity. I mean, let's look at our last uh, membership meeting: a unanimous vote to build a new building. Praise God for that unity. So let's let's rejoice this morning at at what God has done in our church over the last 12 months in 2023. We've added countless countless members. We've baptized uh, lots of college students. We've seen those grow up in the faith through disciple makers, through relationships. Um, There's a lot to praise God for, all the fruit that he has brought us. And God willing, in 2024, there'll be a lot more opportunities to cultivate cultivate this mind of Christ that Chuck was talking about in 2024 as we plant mosaic, as we fundraise for a building, as we send off graduates in the summer and welcome new students in the fall, as we even have an election. So today, church, I I would encourage you to resolve to abide in Christ, resolve to abide in him for our discipleship is nourished only by his love. We will stay connected to him this next year, through the pruning, through everything, as we abide in his love, because we're nourished by his love. Please join me in prayer. Father, we're so thankful for what you've done amongst us this past year. We're so grateful for your grace, I mean that what you've shown us in your word this morning. Lord, we ask that you would uh, help us to remain in you, to abide in you, cleaning our conscience from guilt and fear. Lord, you call us to, to dwell, to, to abide in you, to draw near. I pray that this next year we would be marked by love for one another and love for our community as we... Uh, seek to bring you glory through the fruit that you bring about. In Jesus' name, amen.